Good evening, everybody. A very well, warm welcome from Drug Science to this evening tonight. And a very big thank you especially to the community members who have been supporting us and in practice this event as well. Um, the schedule, just to recap very briefly before the introductions, we will have an interval in about 45 minutes. So those of you who still want to buy a book or to have your book signed, there'll be plenty of time in between. After in the second section, we're continuing with some Q&As as well, as well as just generally talking if you want to meet the team after. So to introduce our wonderful speakers um, today, obviously Professor David Nutt doesn't really need too much of an introduction. This is kind of his CV. He's asked me not to read it out, which I think makes sense. Instead, I'm actually going to steal from Professor Vaikaran and Professor Ilana Chrome, who is here today, because just this week, um, David managed to add another accolade by receiving the Outstanding Contribution Award by the British Association of Psychopharmacology. And Ilana and Val really nicely wrote, I thought, um, so obviously David is a professor of neuropsychopharmacology at Imperial College, the director for the Center for Psychedelic Research. He's written over 35 books of 500 plus journal articles, and he's also founded and keeps on running the hugely successful and clinically important charity drug science which we're here today, as well as inventing a psychoactive as alcohol-free drink, which you're welcome to taste here in the interval, Sentia as well, and continuing to lobby in governments for rational drug policies since a long time, basically. And we're not going to stop yet, Lisa. So this is the end. Moving on to your host for the evening is Dr. David Rizzo and David and Dave have been working together since 2009, I think. David Rizzo qualified as a medical doctor at Copenhagen University Medical School and currently holds an academic clinical lectureship in psychiatry at Imperial College London. And I'd like to say he's pretty much instrumental also in running the Center of Psychedelic Research there. And along his clinical training in medicine and psychiatry, David has been involved in psychopharmacological research, especially using brain imaging techniques such as PET and MRI. Um, initially working at Columbia University in New York, he then undertook his PhD at the University Hospital, Riggs Hospital, is that okay, in Copenhagen. And since 2009, here with um, David Nutt and Professor Anne Lingford at Imperial College. Um, he has conducted postdoc imaging research in the neurobiology of addictions and major depression, together with Professor David Nutt and now Professor Robin Card Harris as well. So thank you very much for coming and a huge welcome to our speakers for tonight. Thank you. That was awkward that mine ended up being longer. It looked longer, David's, but then, yeah. Um, but yeah, thanks everybody for being here. Thank you for coming up on the stage with me. And thank you for giving me the privilege to, to just bombard you with questions. So we obviously speak very often, but so this is a, a moment to ask all the questions I don't get the opportunity to ask you um, that I think might be in the interest of, of others to hear as well. 
So congratulations with yet another book. I don't know how you spit them out with that speed. Um, oh, the secret is to have a good writer. Stand up, writer. Stand up, writer. There's Bridget, the wonderful Bridget. So then, so then, so then my first question might be improvised, whether it was also Bridget answering emails. Uh, I, because when I thought, how can you write all these books? I thought, okay, but one of my first interactions scientifically with you was sending you an 80-page long document at 2 a.m. that I've been working on for weeks and thought, thank God, now it's off. When I woke up too early at 8 or something, checked my email, it was back 80 pages with comments, and I was like, ah, how's that possible? Is that, is that, that was also you. Yeah, thank you. Well. It explains... <laughs> It explains everything. It makes sense. Okay, thank you. It, it, it feels less scary somehow. So, okay. So, well, there's another aspect to it, David. It, it, it's, it's called insomnia. Fair. Which I know the, I know the, I know the cure for, but uh, I, for some reason, you know, it's the usual comment, isn't it? You know, physician, heal thyself. For 20 years, I ran a sleep disorders clinic in Bristol University, but I still managed, still never managed to cure my own insomnia. Too. But I did help a lot of other people. That could open another question about sleep and psychedelics, because we have, in a way, not in, in our lab focused that much about it. Do you have any thoughts about sleep and psychedelics and studies to be done on that topic? Well, we've seen it with... You heard mention of Robin Carhart Harris uh, uh, in the introduction, and he's uh, he's no longer with us. Not that he's gone to heaven, but he's gone to he he is he, gone to heaven. He's UCF. flying to London right now. Oh, I see. But he's gone to UCSF, which is uh, he probably thought was heaven, but actually that's Berkeley and Stanford. But it's close enough. Uh, and uh, you know, about 15 years ago, we thought, wouldn't it be interesting to to give people uh, say psilocybin while they were asleep? In fact, we even wrote a protocol. We, we you know, planned out an experiment, and uh, it would be interesting. But unfortunately, we could never get anyone to fund it. So, so the rich people who are here, will you just line up afterwards, and then we can arrange each of you to fund a different study? Great, David. In order to maybe go back in time with this whole adventure that mm. you are on, and the world, in a way, are on in terms of psychedelics. For you, where did that uh, whole journey start? How, how did you s get interested in the topic? And did you, from the beginning, think that these drugs were therapeutically no. interesting? No, I had actually no idea they would be therapeutically useful. I mean, I think what we have done in, in the last 15 years is a, a brilliant example of what we call translational medicine. I mean, I, in a way, I kind of resisted doing um, psychedelic research, because. I think back 2005, two very interesting people came to see me. One was called Robin Carhart Harris, who then had just finished his master's in, I think, psychoanalysis. And, uh, and the other was a woman called Amanda Fielding, who I guess many of you would have heard of as well. And, and they both said, we want you to do research on psychedelics. And I said, well, why? And, and Amanda says, because they're the best thing since sliced bread. And, and, and Robin said, because that help, help us understand the nature of the unconscious. And neither of those were really compelling arguments in my mind, but, but I sort of set, I set Robin a little task. I said, okay, if you, if you do a PhD with us on MDMA, and you can learn some skills... Not on MDMA, yes. Hmm? Uh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, sorry. 
let me reframe that. <laughs> we have an inter- there's an interesting project we could, uh, we could do looking at the possible negative impacts of MDMA. If you do a project with us that, that actually addresses actually quite a fundamental question, a question that you yourself had worked on over the years, although we didn't know you at the time. You came to the wrong answer, by the way, but uh, we'll come back to that in a minute. Uh, the question is, does MDMA damage your serotonin system in the brain? And it was a, you know, a fundamental question because MDMA was being pilloried uh, a, a lot at the time. And, and I was actually one of the... Those were the days when I was actually helping the government make the right decisions. Well, trying to, anyway. That was before the horse riding paper, which I guess we'll come to subsequently. Anyway, so I said to Robin, look, you've got to do a PhD on MDMA. You've got to find out whether it changes serotonin function in the brain. And uh, yeah, he, he did his PhD. And then, you know, in, you know, I honoured my commitment. Then we said, OK, we'll do a, we'll do a psilocybin study. And, then, and that's how it kicked off, really. But, but historically, I've been very interested in this receptor system for a long, long time because... I did my PhD um, in 19, when was it, 79 to 82, and I was very interested in the mechanism of action of, uh, of antidepressants, but at, at a preclinical level. And the 5-HC2A receptor was a really interesting receptor because there's a lot of it in the cortex, and there's a lot of it, uh, these receptors are in parts of the cortex where people almost certainly do their, their thinking negative thoughts in depression. And of course, it was very difficult to, st- well, it was impossible in those days, it was, uh, to study psychedelics. So we did the next best thing. We actually did the first ever study of a, a blocker of those receptors. And, um, and I was a subject for that, actually. I was one of the, actually one of the first people to take this drug, which uh, was called Ritansurin, which is a selective 5-HC2A blocker. So I blocked all the 2A receptors in my brain for a few weeks and sort of waited to see what happened, actually. In fact, nothing really happened very much. Uh, I didn't think anything happened at all, but... Um, the day before I was to stop the trial, I told my research nurses, well, the trial's over, I haven't shown very much, has it? And they said, please don't stop. <laughs> please don't stop. You're much calmer. <laughs> You're much less irritable. <laughs> but I couldn't carry on because it was a trial anyway. Uh, and the only really interesting thing that came out of that study was the fact that it, this drug massively increased slow-wave sleep. And at the time, we had absolutely no idea what, what, why would blocking a, a receptor in the brain increase uh, slow-wave sleep. And the truth is, we still don't know today why <laughs> blocking those receptors increased slow-wave sleep. But what we do know is that taking psychedelics does exactly the opposite. Uh, and so eventually we got, we got around to doing the, uh, to doing the psychedelic study with, with Robin and Amanda. Um, so now you highlighted some work. If you should, because you have an incredibly long uh, list of publications, if you were sort of forced, which you are now, <laughs> to highlight a few of them that you think have been the most interesting and in a way that looking back at all these different studies and, and, and uh, publications, not the books, the uh, papers, which would you find that you have been involved in, been the sort of highlights most interesting? Um, I think the two, two, there were two studies I've done which I think are really the most interesting and important and they both gave exactly the wrong results uh, and that I think is really you know, a very important message it certainly started off the first one was when I just discovered anti-benzodiazepines uh, drugs which do exactly the opposite so instead of calming you down they wake you up and make you anxious and that was a really that was a very very difficult concept to get across and we were 
took several years before the pharmacological community accepted that. Uh, and, um, and now it's, you know, it's, um, it's fully accepted. They're called inverse agonists. And then the second one was the first psilocybin study, the first psilocybin imaging study. So you do a study, you, you give a drug to people which has never been given before, you scan their brains. You have clever people like Leor in the back there. Stand up, Leor. Leor, he's the guy that analyzed the data, because <laughs> I certainly couldn't do it. And uh, we kept completely paradoxical phenomenon. The, the, the very first results giving individuals intravenous psilocybin, and we gave intravenously because it was too expensive to give it orally because you could reduce the dose by tenfold giving intravenously. And we thought the brain would light up, you know, in the same way as the mind lights up, we thought the brain would light up. But the brain didn't light up. Just a few areas of the brain sort of shut off. We thought, what the hell? You know, that's... In fact, we were so, well, we thought that must be wrong. So we repeat, repeated the experiment using a different kind of analysis, another fMRI analysis, came up with exactly the same results, published it in PNAS, and then the rest is history. Then the whole field exploded because not only were we explaining a psychedelic effect by perturbing brain circuits, which constrain normal consciousness, turned out that the circuits psychedelics perturb are the circuits which also drive depression. So we actually kind of, it was two birds with one stone, if you understand that in Danish. <laughs> sort of. <laughs> we threw the stone, we got two wins, and then we've mm. been pursuing each win since, trying to understand the science of psychedelics, but also moving into the clinic. And I have to say, categorically, I had never expected to be using psychedelics to treat patients until that very first study where we found it, psilocybin switched off some of the key circuits of depression. And that, coupled with the fact that many of our volunteers... I mean, giving people psilocybin, psilocybin trip in a brain scanner is, is not the place most people experience psilocybin. It's not something you choose. I mean, how many of you have been in a scanner? Yeah, and how many of you would actually want to take psychedelics in a scanner? Probably fewer of you. <laughs> just a couple of you, a couple of the experts. <laughs> just, just for science, of course, yes. So it's not a great place. But in fact, many people said they, still, they felt more alert, more in touch with the world. The world seemed brighter. They were more, you know... You know, just generally, there was a sort of sense of improved well-being for a few weeks after that experiment in, in a scanner. Uh, and that coupled with the fact that Johns Hopkins group had done a, a study, uh, uh, not in a scanner, of psilocybin a, a year or two before, showing that it improved well-being. We began to think, well, maybe switching off the circuits of depression and people, normal, non-depressed people having more well-being, maybe it would work in depression. And, well, it did. So on, on that note, so the, the studies that you're referring to, the early imaging work with um, psilocybin, but for that matter also with LSD a few years later, they were done in Cardiff, that's one thing, that's a detail, not super important, but they were done with intravenous um, yes. use of psilocybin. So I remember a lot of conversations in that phase transitioning from the healthy people, from those trials, mm -hmm. to a clinical study in people with depression. Um, and it was debated a lot in our team whether we should stick to the intravenous and in a way have a 45-minute experience with intravenous versus a four-hour oral psilocybin. And we, in a way, changed gear from IV to oral. What do you think would have happened if we had... And, and why didn't we? Because now people are, oh, DMTs, it's a better, it's more scalable, it's quicker, da, da, da. you could just give psilocybin intravenously and you would have a short experience. Mm -hmm. Should that be tested? What would have happened? What would Compass have done if that had been our first study? 
do you think? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, the reason we, the reason we didn't pursue IV psilocybin in the depression study, well, three reasons, really. The first was it's actually much more complicated to do IV administration in the sense that there, it's just another level of, of bureaucratic administrative challenge to, to actually make up a sterile solution. That, so that's tedious. We don't want, and, and the second reason was we could afford the oral. And the third reason, it was, we thought at the time, it, you know, people would prefer to take an oral tablet rather than have an injection. But as you point out, now there's quite a lot of, you know, there's certainly studies going on with, that you've been involved in using an intravenous infusion of DMT. Uh, uh, and that does seem to produce profound, obviously produces profound psychedelic experiences and also quite, quite impressive mood changes. So, uh, so the answer is, I think it would have worked. I think it probably would have worked. I think it probably will work now. Um, I'm still leaning towards the view that uh, uh, the four or five hour trip of psilocybin may give extra value for the, for the, the patient, getting it, allowing them to get more deeply into the, the issues they want to get into. But the, 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 the only way we'd be absolutely sure is to do a head-to-head, -head and hopefully at some point we'll do that. Or someone will do that, no, probably won't be me. So, so um, I asked you before about sort of maybe favorite or highlight mm. studies. Do you, if we apply that to the drugs, um, the, the psychedelics specifically that you're also writing about in your book, um, do you have any sort of favorite, any ones that you feel um, are more, have more potential, stronger, better case, either in general mm. or for specific indication, or mm. do you think it has more to do with the route of administration that you just talked about? Do you have any thoughts on, on the differences between the classics? No, I think, I think the answer is that there are obviously huge differences between the, the classical... When he talks about classics, he's talking about serotonergic psychedelics like LSD, ayahuasca, DMT, psilocybin, 5-methoxy, etc. I think the differences... I mean, the biggest differences are kinetic, aren't they? You know, so that's the first thing. You know, some are very short-acting. But, of course, you can overcome that. You can take... You know, I mean, actually, the first... Psychedelic psychopharmacologists weren't, weren't us. They were the, the indigenous people of the Amazon who worked out you could make a, a really useful drug cocktail by getting a drink which contains DMT, but also putting into the drink an, another plant which makes a, a, a substance called harmaline, which prevents the breakdown of DMT. So, so ayahuasca is a drinkable form of DMT, and that's... That's been around for thousands of years. I mean, it, it's, uh, it's, it's actually extremely clever pharmacology, even if one doesn't, at the time, didn't understand what the agents were. So you could drink DMT. You could, you could give DMT in the same way as you take oral psilocybin. And I suspect, frankly, the effects would be pretty similar. And the clinical trials suggest really relatively similar efficacies. Uh, I don't know. Amanda Fielding is a, is a, a great aficionado of LSD. She thinks it's the, the creme de la creme of psychedelics. But... It's, uh, and that may well be for, um, for her kind of use. Um, I think clinically it's very challenging because of the, the, you know, the trips are very long and, and, and that adds huge expense to, to any kind of research because you would have to keep people in the hospital overnight. And, and that would also have huge implications if it were to be used clinically, if we rolled out in a clinical situation because uh, you almost certainly would have to keep people in hospital overnight. 
So there are merits, potential merits, of a very uh, of a short-acting psychedelic, and, and you know your experiments with DMT, you know the 20-minute infusion, are very very promising. And maybe you could then treat two people a day rather than one with psilocybin. So I think in the end it's going to come down to an economic argument rather than a, a rather than a, um, a mechanistic or a, an efficacy argument. And do you think people could distinguish them if you had LSD, DMT? 5 mu, yeah. maybe even, and so if you gave it in a way where the sort of duration and was a bit difficult to do, think no, that I think the phenomenology would be very I think Lecti's, no, I mean, Mark, uh, Matthias Lecti's studies show if you get estimate, almost certainly, if you approximate to the same brain occupation over the same time course, you get pretty much the same effect. That's what, but he hasn't, I mean, he may be wrong, I mean, but he's definitely the sort of leading clinical pharmacologist of these. Currently, it's difficult to say they're different. I mean, maybe 5-methoxy is different. You know, we'll, f we'll find out when we... Who's doing the study now? Who's, where's, where's our imaging? I've been waiting for the data for a year. Come on. 5 meal? Yeah. Oh, it's complicated. It's there coming. you go. <laughs> <laughs> Don't tell us unless it's right. Um, and th this might be my ignorance. Maybe I don't, just don't know. Do you know whether... Combining 5-MeO-DMT, which is also not orally active on its own, with the Mayo inhibitor, like the ayahuasca idea, would that work for 5-MeO? Do you know that? Probably. We should patent it. Let's <laughs> get a lawyer ready. <laughs> All right. Um, now I asked you about sort of highlights and favorites. What about the opposite? Are there anything... I, I suspect you'll say no, but are there anything... No, if you had to find something that you could, in a way, change that had to do with your career, science, things that you would do differently? Yes, yes. Well, I would probably not provoke the government <laughs> quite as, quite as um, obviously as I did. I don't, yeah, I don't know. Would I have changed? It's a great question. Would I, would I, I often wonder whether things would be better if I hadn't been sacked, whether I could have, I could have carried on, because I would have carried on, I would have carried on for another eight years almost certainly if, if I towed the line and not argued with them, would that have actually produced any better benefits? I, I don't know, I mean, the question is how long, do you, how long do you keep putting up with lies expecting something's going to change and I think uh, it, was, it was nine years of government saying yes we'll do something, yes we'll do something and they're always consistently refusing. So I don't, I don't know, I suspect I was right to start getting angry with them at that point. Um, because what we've seen since is that the, the, their advisory council has been completely emasculated, it's been, it's been destroyed, and anything it says is overruled, and all it's, got, all it's allowed to do really is, to, they, they want it to rubber stamp political decisions that they've already made, and if it doesn't, they just ignore it. So I think I was right to get out, because the one benefit of being sacked was it actually got a debate going. You know, it's, not, it's unusual to sack a government's advisor, isn't it? So people have to test it. <laughs> in fact, you know, there aren't many examples in history, so it, was, it began a discussion. And, and of course, more than that, what did it do? It created drug science. So, I mean, many of you may not, I don't know if you know this, but <coughs> two days after the sacking, I was actually, um, I remember it vividly, you know, it's one of those moments when you've, you know, you have the, what they call the metapsychology of memory. You know, know when the event happened, because I was actually in hospital with my mother. 
<coughs> and I got a text from this, um, got a text saying, you know, if I, <coughs> sorry, let me drink this. It said, uh, if I give you the same amount of money as they spend on the ACMD, would you set up an alternative? It's quite an interesting, you know, I said, yes, I said, yes. <coughs> <coughs> and the rest is history, now we're all here with a great team. So, so I don't know, so the, this whole thing, has it impacted the number of people riding on a horse in this country, do you know? <laughs> well, so uh, one thing I did was I stopped my daughter's riding. Because actually it was, yeah, I hadn't, I mean... You, you, if people don't know, if I say ecstasy versus equity, that was the word, right? Are there anyone who is like, what are these guys talking about? Then then put an arm up if you actually don't know what we mean when it's ecstasy versus... It, it's not embarrassing not to know. Okay, maybe everybody knows so, about the horse riding. Well, no, I'll, I'll just... I'll, not everyone does, there's some hands up. So, yeah, so... In 2007 or 8, we were allowed... The Advisory Council of the Misuse of Drug was allowed for the first time ever to review the harms of ecstasy. And uh, it was something the government had resisted ever since ecstasy had been made it illegal back in the late 1970s. And they'd resisted and resisted because they knew if you did a critical appraisal of the status of ecstasy as a class A drug, it, could not, it was not sustainable. So they didn't want us to do it. But in fact, there was a, a, a science and technology select committee. Eventually, they met with the advisory council and they said, why haven't you done a review of ecstasy? It's 30 years old. And we said, we haven't been allowed to do that because the Home Office won't allow it. And they said to the Home Office, well, you've got to, they've got to do it because the Select Committee over, overrid the Home Office. And, um, and actually, that, just as an aside, there was one of the funniest interchanges I've ever had in a government situation at that meeting because it, the, the whole concept, the whole, the whole premise behind the select committee was to look for evidence for policy. And uh, as we were talking about uh, the, the ecstasy uh, review, they asked the drugs minister who was sitting next to me, uh, they said to him, they said, Vernon, they said, um, you know, do you know the meaning of the word evidence? And very honestly and innocently, he said, yes, of course I do. Evidence is what we look for to support our policy decisions. <laughs> and of course, everyone felt about laughing except Vernon. But, um, so then we went away and we did the assessment. And as predicted, it, it, the, the decision was made almost, cut, almost you know, completely that it sh it, the most ecstasy should be a class B drug. And some people wanted it a class C drug. So the report went out and... Uh, uh, and, but I knew, I knew it was going to be difficult because we'd already had multiple previous reports on other drugs, particularly cannabis, which we'd done many times, bounce back, bounce back. And uh, so I thought, wouldn't it be interesting to sort of try to get something into the public debate about comparative harms of activities which weren't drugs? And uh, about a year before this report, in my clinic, I'd seen a woman in her late 30s, who'd fallen off a horse and smashed the front of her brain in. And, uh, and it had fundamentally changed her personality. She became very disinhibited. 
and um, she lost her job and her husband left her and took the kids and she became, she was some banned from the supermarkets at times because of her severe impulsivity. And, uh, and I used to see a lot of people with brain damage and, and, and impulse control disorders because I, I was one of the few doctors prepared to treat them. And we, we used treatments for ADHD like amphetamine, which is kind of marginally helped, but it was never going to restore the damage to the brain. And uh, so then I started looking up how harmful horse riding was. And, and I remember one evening suddenly discovering you know, that my daughters you know, had taken about 10 years off their life if they continued. So I decided to stop them riding and, and write a paper. But I, because there was, a, there was a Times journalist who'd fallen off a horse, and um, I've forgotten her name now, and broken her back and her neck, but wrote about how addicted she was to horse riding. And she ended up riding on a horse in a frame, you know, in a metal frame, to, so she could do that. And she said, I'm addicted to horse riding. So I thought, hang on, maybe we could get an interesting dialogue going. So I, I invented a syndrome called, ex, a syndrome called equacy, equine addiction syndrome. <coughs> and then with a bit tongue-in-cheek, I wrote a paper <coughs> comparing the two, equacy and ecstasy. And uh, people thought it was a drug. <coughs> Sorry. And in fact, the, the first page was written as if equacy was a drug. And a number of my uh, continental colleagues wrote back afterwards saying, <coughs> we're really irritated with you, nut, because you, you fooled us to think there was a new drug on the streets called equacy. Mm-hmm. But it was a piece about saying, basically, if you compare horse riding with ecstasy, <coughs> horse riding is um, more dangerous, particularly if you jump. So that seemed to me a very good argument for not worrying about um, reducing the classification of ecstasy from A to B. But uh, the government went mad, and the right-wing press went mad. And uh, <coughs> Sorry, that was my... As the subsequent Home Secretary said, that was my first yellow card. <laughs> and the second one was, um, it came a year later when I had the audacity to say on um, the Today programme that uh, LSD was less harmful than alcohol. And that was my second yellow card, and so I was sent off. <laughs> so. I mean, there was at least only a red card from, um, from that specific role, so you have had a, an amazing career also since then in, in, in science and also with drug science. Um, what if you hadn't had any career like this, if you hadn't been a medic, you hadn't been a scientist, mm-hmm. what do you think you would have been doing and do you think you would have been as successful in whatever you would have chosen? What would you have done? Yeah, good question. I often wonder about that. What could I have done better? Yeah. I like chemistry. Maybe I could have invented new drugs. <laughs> Maybe I've achieved more by liberating something. Like okay, so still in, in the sort of... I think science, yes. Yeah, I think science. I, those, who was the guy that brought my autobiography to sign? Is he still here? Where are you? Yeah, there you go. Uh, I've, I've always been a scientist, you know, ever since I was 10. Always wanted to understand science, yes. Have you ever got to that page yet? <laughs> yeah, you've heard. But you also. Can you remember what it was? 
Atmospheric pressure. The demonstration of atmospheric pressure. So not badminton, not a badminton career. You were really good at badminton. I was good at badminton, yeah, for a while, yes. Um, in not as good as the Danes, though. No, Danes are, are number good. one in Europe. Yeah. You no. understand he is Danish, don't you? you understand. But I'm not particularly good That's at badminton. That's why he's so good looking. I'm not particularly good at badminton. <laughs> so, in terms of the flip side of the coin, potentially in the future, um, I know you, 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 know, you, you push through with these drugs and you uh, have a lot of influence, also potentially even in what happened in Australia, I have the sense that, that, that you have had uh, you know, involvement in all of that. And, and if you sort of had to try to focus in on potential downfalls, um, mm. traps, dangers mm. in the development from where we are right now, where would you see any big potential traps? Yeah, it's called the Daily Telegraph. It's, <laughs> that is the, and the mail. Well, I don't know, the mail's coming round. Didn't we have something in the mail? Have we got something in the mail coming up? I can't remember. Are we doing something in the mail soon? Or was that something else we did in the mail? I think I did something in the mail last week, and that was, it was a remarkable. It was a, the first time I'd done something in the mail that didn't have a nutty professor above it. So it's kind of, <laughs> but the telegraph, we haven't cracked the telegraph yet. Once we do that, then I think that the, the, you know, the, biggest, the, the biggest threat is the fact that we mistake silence for agreement. Because I still think there are a lot of people out there that, are, that would dearly like to see this move towards a more liberal, rational drug policy um, reverse, reversed. I mean, one of them is a very obvious person. She's called Braverman, if you've heard of her. And uh, you know, the woman that wants to make cannabis a class A drug to deter people from using it because it's dangerous, and who's going to make nitrous oxide a controlled drug shortly because she doesn't like littering. So I don't know, she knows how to spell psychedelic, so it might be where we've got a little bit of breathing space here, and hopefully she'll be gone before she learns how to. But I don't see her being particularly, particularly enthusiastic. I mean, I mean I, I'm very, very serious here, because when you probably know that drug science and the Conservative Drug Policy Reform Group and a number of other organisations, including kind of reputable bodies like the British Pharmacological Society, have been campaigning for a rescheduling of psychedelics like psilocybin so we can do research more easily, so we can cut through the red tape, so we can actually reduce the cost and the burden of this research, which is enormously enhanced because they're schedule one drugs. I mean, so our research, we have to have a special safe to hold the psychedelics. <clears throat> Whereas I can put my cocaine and my heroin and my fentanyl in the hospital safe, hospital pharmacy. And you say to the Home Office, why do I need a special safe that's bolted to the floor and has a camera over it? Uh, if anyone breaks in, they're definitely not going to take that. They're going to take the heroin and the cocaine, aren't they? And they say, ah, oh, but it's a class, it's a Schedule One drug. And you say, well, well that's just a historic artifact. It's a Schedule One drug. That's just a historical artifact. It's a schedule. And the point is, there is no thinking about this. The, the laws have been set up. It's the Schedule One drug. You've got to have all this stuff. You've got to pay all this money. In fact, it got worse. Theresa May, when she was um, Prime Minister, decided that it wasn't just enough to have a license to hold these drugs and a license to, to uh, dispense these drugs. Every single clinical study we do now knows its own special license. God knows why. I think it's just a way of making money for the Home Office. But, but that's, those are these absurdities of the law. Anyway, I'm rambling a bit. But, so we've been campaigning for the last... Uh, few years to get the, these drugs rescheduled from 
Schedule 1 to Schedule 2, in the same way as cannabis was rescheduled in 2018. And there was a debate, there was a very moving uh, debate in Parliament a, a few weeks ago uh, when relatively few MPs turned up, but the ones that did spoke with enormous emotion uh, and personal narratives of, the, of, of how drugs had helped them and, uh, and how they, why we should change the law. And the Home Office, well, the Home Office didn't even send the drugs minister to abate it. They sent the immigration minister. Uh, you know, well, we'll come back to that another time. But, um, and then we asked the Home, the home Office, were asked by, by members of the press, you know, why aren't you prioritising this need to change the schedules you know, um, so that we can do more research? And, and they said, well, we're more worried about monkey dust. Which is kind of surreal, isn't it? I mean, monkey dust is just, well, if it even exists, it's certainly not doing much harm. But it's part of the, you know, they could easily justify moving monkey dust out of class B as cathinones are into class A. But to focus on something as irrelevant as that, rather than something which is a, a problem which is impeding research in the, right across the UK. I mean, almost no psychedelic research is being done in the UK except at Imperial and at King's. Most universities don't even have a license because it's too expensive and tedious. So, you know, we really are taking a completely distorted view of, of or the Home Office is taking an extraordinary distorted view of, of, of what drugs and what drug policy should be about. So, so if I hold you a bit to the question and say, if it has nothing to do with Daily Mail or government, mm. what could there be other downfalls that actually have nothing to do with that? Yeah, it could be that um, some therapists start giving large doses of psychedelics to people in a, who shouldn't have them and who aren't protected and who are vulnerable to psychosis. There could be some very unpleasant reactions. We know historically there, well, you know, you have got this very chilling example in Denmark, haven't you, where one rogue psychiatrist did some you know, extremely unethical, unethical things with LSD to patients. Yeah, we really want to avoid any, any of those kind of extreme um, historical mistakes. And what about the push and drive from industry? It, it, it clearly is not the easiest model in the world to imagine yeah. spinning gold on. No, um, so in order to potentially you know, get money back to investors and, and, and make money out of it, um, what, how do you, see, do you see any sort of... No, you're right, David, you're right. There, there, there is another big threat, which is that the traditional model of a drug company developing a drug and taking it through the regulatory pathway and getting a license that may fail. I mean, it's, uh, I think it's quite likely that, that the MAPS MDMA trials will succeed. I think it's pretty likely that MAPS will get a license. Whether Compass and psilocybin you know, can raise enough money to take it through, uh, I'm not so sure. And, and, and uh, so I think, you know, there's, there is, the field has massively, been massively deinvested in in the last year, most companies have lost 90% of their capitalization. So, so there is a threat that we won't be able to develop psychedelics in the traditional way and roll them out in the traditional way. Now, I'm not as worried about that as some people are. And that's one of the reasons I was in Australia for three weeks before Christmas, championing the Australian decision to, which is going to happen on Sunday. On the 1st of July, psilocybin is a medicine in Australia for treatment-resistant depression and MDMA as a medicine in Australia for treatment-resistant PTSD. Now, you might say, how can that be? There's no drug company license to sell it, and there isn't. 
But what the, what's happened in Australia is that a charity is making it available, is making medical quality psilocybin and GMP available to doctors who've got some experience in using psychedelics so they can use it. And that model to me is, that's fantastic because it is a medicine. I mean, a medicine isn't what drug companies sell, sell to doctors. Or sell to, a medicine is what doctors use to heal people. And we know that psychedelics have been used since the early 50s to heal people. They've just been a 50-year hiatus because of the ban. So, so I think it, one way or the other, it's going to work. But it may be that we don't, it's not brought in in the traditional sort of pharma model. Mm. So, so you're saying that maybe it's impossible, for instance, to raise the capital and get it all the way through. Could it be that the companies, in a way, are trying to get a square breakthrough, a round hole, in order to get this model to fit yeah. the conventional well, model and also something that is easier to find and then cut stuff out of it that might be damaging? Yeah. Do you have well, that that's fear? an interesting challenge. So, I mean, what you're saying is, suppose... Even let's suppose psilocybin gets the license. Would NICE say oh, it's too expensive? And then would, would people say, okay, we got, we've got to have a, a pruned down version, less treatments or less therapy in order to get within the price threshold? I think that's a real risk in this country, actually. I think it's a real risk. And that's one of the reasons I'm actually doing a lot of work in the private sector, because I, sadly, the same is true for ketamine. If you, the only psychedelic therapy you can get in this country for resistant depression is ketamine. And it, it's almost impossible to get it on the NHS, even though it, you can get ECT on the NHS, and ketamine's as good as ECT, but you can't get ketamine. Why? Because no company is selling it. <laughs> and, and to my mind, that is absurd, you know, that you've got to rely on a company selling a drug in order to make it available. So, yeah, it is a, it is a, it is a threat, David. And it, but, you know, you know, we could get around it if the MHRA did what the Australian regulators do and say, yes, it's a medicine. And that, there's a precedent for that. Sally Davis in 2018 said, cannabis is a medicine, even though no companies were selling it. Um, not many are now, but at least it's available if you can get, if, you know, if you've, uh, companies aren't, do make it available and you can prescribe it. So, uh, you know, historically that's worked partly here and, and that might be the, what we have to do. And maybe drug company could be the charity that actually does the sort of quality control and the importation. Good uh, way to uh, end the first half. So we will have a break of half an hour and then a few more questions and then open up for discussion uh, afterwards. So now there is... Half an hour. Thank you. Thank you. Your conversations are more interested in mine, but uh, if we don't get started, I won't get home. <laughs> yeah, let's start again. Welcome back. Is there any censure left or is it all gone? All gone. What a bummer. But there are more books left, by the way. David noticed that you haven't bought all the books, so please buy the rest of the books before you leave. Um, What I have read of it, of, of course, I'm sitting here, I read the whole thing, um, is great, so I can recommend it. Um, and now to impress and to convince you that I have read the whole book, I decided to ask a question from the last bit of the book, <laughs> very cheeky, um, where you have a little box about uh, 
children taking small doses of psychedelics. Do you want to elaborate on that? (laughs) Do you want to tell us your thoughts uh, and knowledge about um, people under 18 and psychedelics? And where's that going to go? Well, the evidence uh, that I refer to in the book is uh, the the, the evidence from um, Latin America, particularly Brazil, with the the churches, the uh, Santa Diame Church and the Unato de Vegetali Church, where they use ayahuasca as part, instead of um, wine, I've obviously read my papers, haven't they? They, <laughs> they use ayahuasca instead of wine in their ceremonies. And, uh, and they introduce uh, them, that to children at a, quite an early age uh, as part of the celebration. And, uh, and it seems that their children are well-behaved and intelligent and creative, and they don't seem to show any particularly negative effects of, uh, of this drink from, a, uh, you know, from, the, from an early stage. So, so I think the fears that people have had that uh, everyone will go mad if they take uh, LSD when they're young is, uh, I've been you know, clearly dispelled because DMT doesn't do that. What do I think about children uh, in the West using psychedelics? Uh, you know, as I always say, whenever I give a talk, uh, to children about using drugs. I say the biggest danger about using drugs is, of course, being caught, because uh, <laughs> that, that does really mess with your career. Um, so, uh, and um, if you're going to take drugs, obviously do it as safely as possible. Um, and uh, if you're going to take psychedelics, make sure there's someone with you who isn't taking psychedelics. Because you know you don't want to do something silly like Nick Cave's son did recently and experience a, a sea trip on the top of Beachy Heads because that's um, it's very dangerous if you think you could walk off the edge. So there are occasional serious harms from taking psychedelics in dangerous situations, and we we'll definitely recommend not doing that. But I'm really interested in the the possibility that psychedelics might be able to it might even be better than in, in adolescence than in, um, in adults. I'm wondering whether psychedelics might be the answer to some of the major problems we have now with, uh, with a range of mental health problems in, in young people. Uh, I would really like to start studying that because it's ethically difficult. There are two positive things to say about that though. One is, one is we're beginning. Um, so one of my colleagues at Imperial is um, Martina de Simplicio. She's very interested in, in, in young people who cut themselves, you know, repeated cutters, and, um, and she's developed a, a, a cognitive model where to help people think differently when they have the urge to cut. And we've managed to get funding to see whether we could use a sub-psychedelic dose of psilocybin, the same sort of doses we're using in people with OCD, to try to help them acquire the skill not to cut or to think differently about when they want to cut. So that's a very exciting development. Uh, and then the second uh, thing that will happen, if a company gets a license, and this is, as I said before, it's very likely that um, MDMA will become a medicine for PTSD in the not too distant future, then there are regulatory pressures that encourage, that they demand the company does studies in young people because they're pretty sure it's going to be used in young people, so they want to collect data of safety and uh, efficacy. 
And that's also quite exciting because those studies will have to be done and we need to gear up to do them. And I suspect they're going to show that, that, that MDMA and eventually hopefully psilocybin is effective in young people as well as it is in elderly people. And it's going to be safe. And uh, it, the fact that it produces, that you can get these enduring changes in behavior and attitude uh, from just you know, one or two treatments could actually, you know, it, again, it could be even more important for young people than in old people. I, I uh, heard Rick Doblin years ago, I think when they were, yeah, years back, earlier stage in this development of uh, MAPS development of MDMA for PTSD, saying that they had to fill out a form, they got the whole thing back from the FDA and, and had to fill out a form, what was their strategy for children, and he thought, okay, this is a standard thing that they had filled out and they had just put non-applicable or something because they thought, okay, it's controversial enough that we need to smash down these walls with these regulatory bodies and, and this standard item about the children's strategy, he thought probably better not to fill it out, but they then came back and said, no, 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 it's, it's, a, it's a demand. Uh, ethically, morally, it has to be studied also in older age and young age in the second that it mm. has shown efficacy and safety for normal adult range. So it is actually going to happen when I... I yeah, and that's one of the reasons we're gearing up at Imperial with Martina to begin to work with child psychiatrists so that we could be ready. We would be in a strong position to help them do that. And I guess this is not the crowd. If it was a different kind of crowd, you might have people sitting thinking, oh my goodness, oh, that's extremely controversial. But if you think about it, and you probably don't need to think about it, but think about the prescriptions of amphetamines to people mm -hmm. that are daily for years. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Is it that wild to then give very, very, very few doses of a little bit less toxic compound like MDMA together with psychotherapy? It's not that controversial, actually. Um, no, and the good thing is about giving it to children is that they don't vote anyway, so... <laughs> <laughs> you create no a whole, there. whole no army of little nutters. Um, the, okay, so I, before we open up for questions, maybe one... I would like you to maybe ref reflect with us a bit about the whole placebo uh, issue. That's another yes, box yes. and chapter in your book about mm. that. Mm. I think in the context of microdosing, because that's in a way where we have also focused mm. a lot about placebo. But the whole thing about placebo, could you imagine that our regular clinical colleagues and scientists that are not in the field of psychedelics might in a way never, never, ever be proper convinced about these drugs? because of that whole mm. paradox. And do you see that as a problem mm. also going forward? Well, it's a problem at present. It's a problem because uh, there is a, a kind of, kind of well-ingrained mythology that only placebo-controlled trials are scientifically valid. And we know that's wrong. We know that's actually been, it's been shown to be wrong for a very long time. The reason we actually, the kind of reason we insist on RCTs these days, I think, is largely because the regulators have forgotten that there are other ways you could actually analyse data. And we've got a paper coming out. Um, Larry Phillips, who's in the back of the audience here, um, Balas Zaghetti, who's the guy that did your uh, your microdosing study, and me. We've got a paper coming out in the British Journal of Clinical Pharmacology, which is a kind of real journal. You know, I mean, that's real doctors. On celebrating the, uh, the death of, or the, the life of Sir Michael Rawlins, who actually was um, preceded me as the head of the ACMD, and, uh, and I worked with him on 
on, on the MHRA as well. And, uh, and he was an extraordinarily competent and talented clinical pharmacologist. And in 2008, he wrote, a, he gave a lecture, the annual lecture to the Royal College of Physicians called the, the Harveyan Lecture after William Harvey. And he essentially said, RCTs have, have been put on a pedestal which they don't deserve. And there are many other ways of collecting data that are equally valuable. And to, to essentially force every, everything into the RCT model, which means having a placebo, is, is actually scientifically pointless and enormously wasteful. Because you think about it, if you've got a, a study where half the people get placebo, you've actually, half those people don't tell you anything about the drug. They don't tell you anything about side effects. They don't tell you anything about efficacy. So that paper's coming out very shortly. It was accepted just a couple of days ago. So you can, there are ways, other ways of, 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 um, of analyzing what you might call pharmacological data. But I see psychedelics a bit differently from that. And I, and I, I like to, some of you may know that in the last year I've had both my knees replaced, foot, total knee replacements on both knees. And, um, and that's worked extremely well. But when I asked the surgeons where the RCT evidence was, they didn't have any. Kind of weird, you know. But I trusted them, and it worked. And that's, and that's I think, what psychedelics are. You know, they're, they're actually so powerful. You know, you do, it's almost impossible to do proper blinding, so why worry about it? Why not just get on, do it, and see how people, people um, get by? I, I really wouldn't want to be in the placebo surgery arm. God knows what that would have been like. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and again, and, and it's probably also why it has come up so much with microdosing, because microdosing then falls in a different, you know, it falls more in the conventional, and there you, in a way, should be probably testing it with conventional yeah. methods. But then that opens up to questioning the way that normal conventional drugs are being tested and whether the blinding there is good enough and so on. And that we're yeah. also coming with a paper about. With that's that. right, that's right. Yeah, so it's, it's quite funny. Well, that's the, yeah, there's a lot of medicine which is... is supposed to be blinded, but which isn't. And, and, if you, and if you look at the data, you realize that it's actually very hard to blind many, many aspects, many different treatments in medicine. So let's have a more mature approach. Let's, you know, let's balance out RCTs with real-world data. So one of the really interesting things I've discovered, we're not talking about cannabis tonight particularly, but, but drug science has done this amazing initiative, the 2021 Medical Cannabis Initiative. Now, Thank you. Clap. So here's a little, it's a little snippet of information. Even the most avid followers of 2021 will not know this piece of data because only four people in the room know this data. Where's Linsky? There he is. He sent it to me yesterday. So, so in 2021, we've been treating people with pain and with anxiety. Now he started looking at the outcomes of people with PTSD. And uh, I'm not gonna remember the numbers precisely, Michael, but my understanding is that two thirds of them had comorbid depression. So they wouldn't have been eligible for an RCT. It turns out, fascinatingly, that, that depression is, you could, those people respond to medical cannabis relatively well, considered as, almost as well as the people who have, have um, uh, just PTSD alone. Is that right? Have I got it right, roughly? Better. The depressed ones do better. So they would have been eliminated from a pro, an ordinal RCT on, on PTSD, but if you put them in this real-world database, you actually discover something really interesting about them. And, uh, and, and that is 
another thing to say about how we might roll out psychedelics. What, what we've negotiated with the Australian charity that is funding the MDMA and the psilocybin um, availability in Australia is that we will do their data analysis. So it'll be independent. They will send the data to us and then we will do our analysis on that. Hopefully in real time. See, I'm, I'm, my, real, my dream is that we will have on the Drug Science website a, a data showing the progressively increased significance of the Australian findings on a patient-by-patient -patient basis. That's my so, ambition. It probably won't be quite as neat as that, but we are, we are, that's what we're working towards. So, th so this is not a question I plan, but couldn't a concern be that it might be 50, 100 private clinics in Australia who will do it, and what would be their interest in, because they're not being forced to provide any outcome data, only data about how many they treat. Yeah. Is it in their interest to provide that data? Could there be a problem that the data will never be collected? Well, that's why we're in a strong position, because they can't get the drug unless they sign up to the data collection. Good. It's the 2021 model, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, okay, that, that's, that's actually quite reassuring. So now I will not ask more questions. I think we should let everybody get, not maybe everybody, but several get a chance. There are different people with their hands up. Someone down the middle there? Two people down the middle? Ryan, Mag. The middle, this is called the middle. Oh, yeah, but... Ryan, the middle. Ryan, no, no, he's Ryan, got one. No, give it to him, no, give it to no, him, no, give it to him. That's unfair. <laughs> he got it. Yeah, I'm the other. I'm Ollie at the other middle. Uh, <laughs> nice chat, thank you very much. Um, I wanted to ask, in a lot of your research papers with psychedelics, you have generally recurring exclusion material, such as uh, psychosis, uh, history of psychosis, schizophrenia. Um, I think being hospitalized for suicidality was, or suicidal experiences, one of those as well, yeah. if I remember rightly. Go on. Is there a, any hope in the future of researching whether there could be a form of psychedelic-assisted therapy as a sudden topical treatment for suicidal well, intentions, strong suicidal I think that's intentions, really, or psychosis, yeah. or any of those things that might challenge the... Well, certainly, criteria. I mean, and yeah. also, sorry, quick question: Does that come from the ethics boards, that exclusion criteria, or is it the difficulty in managing it with the tests? Well, it's a bit of both, really. But the reality is, it's, it's, you know, as I said before the break, there are definitely quite a lot of individuals out there, and probably quite a lot of doctors, who would actually prefer this field not to progress. And the last thing we want to do is give them you know, uh, ammunition to shoot us down and, and we've discovered already with ketamine, I mean one of the fundamental, you know, ketamine although it's a powerful treatment, as I say, as good as ECT and a lot cheaper, it's not available because there are people who've said, well you know, you haven't done the proper studies, we don't know if it, it deals with suicidality, etc. So we're, we're very worried about getting any negative data which would kind of preemptively strike at what we're trying to achieve. But I think in time, yeah, I mean, there, again, there is now evidence with ketamine that it does help reduce suicidality. Um, the schizophrenia, psychosis questions are more, much more complicated one. I think there are trials now beginning using non-psychedelic doses of psychedelics with a view to trying to improve neuroplasticity and maybe cognitive function in, in people with psychosis. 
I mean, I, you know, I, I hope they work. I mean, I'm not sure they will, and I just hope they don't make things worse. So I think at present, we, you know, we have to just be cautious because it's, uh, you know, there's, a lot of, there's a lot to gain, but also a lot to lose if we... Can, uh, it, we just have to hang in there. I, th I think <laughs> it's also, in a way, reflects how relatively early the whole thing actually is in the development that, that you know, yeah, there have been a lot of trials now, small trials in depression, maybe one big one by Compass, um, but it is kind of logical step to be quite cautious in, in, in the inclusion, exclusion decisions for those trials. And already now it's slowly moving in a more brave, bit broader direction. Within the next few years probably will maybe be a, a emotional unstable sort of borderline trial. There, might, there has already been a small study uh, in bipolar type 2 in depression phase, again, a step further and that look fine and safe. So it's small baby steps in a safe, logical order. So it, it's not necessarily that it will never happen, but it, it, it has to happen in the right order. And going into psychosis, that's quite an extreme step, I would say. Um, yeah, and, and just, that's absolutely right. We know we have to be cautious. And also, you know, the weirdest thing, after the, some of you may not, so we've talked a bit about the COMPASS trial. So some of you may not know what we're talking about. So after the study that we did at Imperial, uh, in two, published in 2016, the first treatment resistance study, this company called Compass Pathways uh, was set up uh, and it, re it did a similar study but a much bigger study uh, with three doses in multiple countries, a massive, I mean, an amazing study, the best study that's been done. And it came to virtually the same results as us, that the 25 milligram trip dose of psilocybin produced good, really good outcomes of 20% of people in remission, treatment resistant depression in remission at three months. And that paper was, came out one morning, and at about 12 o'clock, I got a phone call from CNN, and they said, have I read it? And I said, oh, yes. And he said, what do you think about this suicide risk? And, and the focus was utterly on three patients who hadn't done very well on the treatment and were still suicidal, like depressed people often are. But that, the, the obsession with finding something wrong, rather than celebrating the fact that you, know, you actually have a massive study that validates um, the utility of these drugs, you know, again, it, it's, it's a warning to us that, that a lot of people are seeking to find problems. Okay. Yeah, go. We live in a country that prides itself on being the home of liberalism, um, but we're seeing all around the world other countries taking a far more liberal approach to drugs laws and research. What is it about our policy makers, do you think? And I'm going to choose my word carefully. What makes our policy makers so retarded in this field? <laughs> well, yeah, I think it's called the press. I think, you know, we know that um, decisions in this country are largely driven by certain sectors of the press. So one of the, the most bizarre things that I discovered, maybe the most embarrassing, saddest thing I discovered well, all those years I worked for the Home Office on drug policy was that basically the first thing they do in the Home Office every morning is read what the um, Daily Mail wrote about them yesterday. <laughs> uh, and I'll tell you a story, I don't think many of you know this, you may not even know this David. So the very first um, psilocybin study we did, uh, the brain imaging study, at the end that we had, I would, we were able to slot in uh, the journalist Michael Mosley in as a sort of educational 
experience. Um, uh, and because he was, he was, he was doing a, a BBC Three series on, on psychology, and, and, and he heard about what we were doing, and so we, we gave him some psilocybin, and he came out, and he was you know, quite high after a result of that, as a result of that. And then it was going to be broadcast uh, on a Monday evening, and on the, um, on the Friday before then, I was actually giving a lecture in uh, University of Stirling. And uh, most of that day, I was on the phone because the mail on Sunday had asked the Home Office, they heard it was coming out on Monday, they, asked, they, they challenged the Home Office to prove we had licenses. And it was a very complicated thing to do because I, I was in Bristol at the time, half, but I was also in Period at the time, and the study was then in Cardiff. And we spent all day trying to put together all the evidence that we'd uh, done this ethically and appropriately. And, uh, and we did, of course, we had, and eventually we presented all the data. And I was coming back to the, flying back, you know, going back to Edinburgh Airport that night, and I spoke to the, to the BBC guys and said, bloody hell, that was hard work, wasn't it? I mean, what a whole day of just trying to appease the mail on Sunday just because we're doing a psilocybin study. And he said, oh, it happens every Friday. Every Friday, the Mail on Sunday attack the BBC, somewhere or other. They, they just, that's what they do, because they want to have an article on Sunday telling people how bad the BBC is. And that is the, you know, that, that, the right-wing press is the biggest problem we have in this country, that they manipulate elections, they manipulate politicians. They, apparently, they pay ex-prime ministers an enormous amount of money for writing about obesity, which is quite fascinating, isn't it? <laughs> I do remember it. Uh, I gave him the dog, Michael Mosley, and it was the first time I was subtitled on British TV. I've been a couple of times. Since. Oh, I should have blamed you. <laughs> it's very humiliating. Another question? Hi. Hi, David. David. Um, I showed the, uh, tra the transcript of the conversation you had with Home Secretary Jackie Smith to my flatmate. And he said, I'm going to email into her podcast and ask her to explain it. Um, so hopefully that's one to look forward to. Um, my main interest in the field of psychedelic research stems from a paper that actually the two of you wrote, um, Psychedelic Experience Modulated by Cannabis. And I think, considering we're at the beginning of institutionalized psychedelic research. A very interesting field is that interactivity. Mm. Uh, I was just wondering what your thoughts are on that and that area of psychedelic research. Well, that was, that was his paper, not, you know, I mean, I, I, I didn't, uh, they just put my name on just so, so I, you know, <laughs> to appease me, you know, as a bit of, but, but it, I highlight something really interesting. So that, was, that wasn't a study, that was, those, that was a, basically a survey of people's reports, and just make it, make it clear to everyone that survey data has been enormously helpful in helping us plan the kind of research we do. And, and not just us, I mean, what, some of you may know that um, a guy called Matt Hopkins in um, Johns, sorry, Matt Johnson in Johns Hopkins University has done a study of psilocybin to help people stop smoking. And I said, why, why did you, that's a weird thing to do. And he said, oh, well, actually, we did a survey of people stopping smoking and tried to find out what factors help them stop smoking. And a significant number said, oh, I took psychedelics and stopped smoking. So the real world, you know, can actually tell you quite a lot. And that was, you know, that was David's group that did the, the survey with cannabis and, uh, 
and psychedelics. And, you know, it's a fascinating uh, you know, possibility of doing some, you know, doing some what you might call proper research with that. But, it's, you know, it's going to be very difficult to get funded. But at least we even now, we, we've got some sort of meaningful reason for thinking about it. Yeah. Yes, mainly other people in team. We, we have a lot, a lot of those surveys. Also, several coming out with results from that, which is really... Yeah, fun and interesting, and we can get up in much larger numbers. Obviously, they're not as controlled. You can't fully rely on, on it before it has been tested a bit more formally. Um, but, yeah, it, it, it's smart. Probably Rayan might know specific about that one better than I remember. If No? Can you hear me? Was it the paper which suggested that high doses of cannabis induce oceanic boundlessness similar to psychedelics and thereby they could also be used in cannabis-assisted no, psychotherapy. Was it that one? I think or? it's the one where, where the effect was changed in the people who had co-used with cannabis, right? But actually, I don't, let's speak about it after. Uh, yeah. yeah. Hello. Um, as you kind of mentioned in the, in, at the end of the first part and in the beginning here, like the RCTs and the traditional approvals, might not be the route for psychedelic drugs, which might mean that there's not going to be many pharma companies selling this drug. Um, do you think that there might be kind of a limited amount of clinics, or, or there will be private clinics offering this yeah. therapy, which might then result in more disparity in mental health space when mm. only rich people can access this treatment, but and more kind of less fortunate people will miss out on this? And if so, is there a way? around it to help more people? You know, it's a really, really important question. And uh, you, we, um, in the UK, we do have, you know, an extremely uh, inflexible system. If the NHS doesn't provide it like it doesn't provide ketamine, then you can't get it except in the private sector. And uh, one way you can use the private sector is to get them working together to collect data. And that's one of the reasons. I mean, I, I've been working with a company called Awaken to try to set up ketamine clinics that would collect data in a systematic way to help event. Because I, I think it wouldn't be difficult to show that in the private sector ketamine is effective, which it is, and to show it's cost effective uh, and then and use that to justify the NHS either providing it themselves or just or maybe even buying it from the private sector like they buy operations, you know, like hernias and that. So so I think it's, the private sector is not ideal, but at present it's, it's the best we've got in terms of that kind of innovation. Carry on. The, what about the bladder thing? I think... Um, oh, no, the bladder thing... Well, it, we only give two doses. Oh. <laughs> We're using ketamine like... Maybe more than two, maybe eight, but not yeah. as much as what is... Yeah, there is, a, there is an issue. If you, if, you could, if you take ketamine all the time, you can become dependent. That's one of the reasons I prefer to use psychedelics, psilocybin or DMT than, than ketamine. But in, in, clin, in regular clinical use, we're only using a few doses, so it's very unlikely people are going to get better. In fact, they don't. We know from the... the yeah, the, I get the, the risk is if people then start using it massively outside after the first, you know, in a clinic, and that is a concern. I don't think there's any data to support that it's a big problem. Could it be a next drug epidemic from a, you know, it, I think people are quite, you know, aware and trying to monitor it, but um, 
So far, it doesn't look deeply concerning, but there will be a few probably where that will happen, which is not, not good. Okay. Man standing up. Uh, evening. Uh, good evening, Professor. Um, I'm a clinical scientist at King's, uh, specializing in Alzheimer's and cannabis research. Um, so you won't be surprised that I scuttled to the index of your book already, looking up dementia, uh, and found a half page on uh, 223, uh, with evidence 1 out of 10. Um, which doesn't disappoint me, it actually excites me, because it means there's a whole load of uh, work to do there still. Um, so don't tell me, you were sitting there, you bought the book, and then you went straight to the Alzheimer bit. Yeah, I did. <laughs> and actually, uh, it's going to lead on to my, uh, my question, uh, slash asking for professional advice. Um, in the last 30 years, we've not had any new dementia no, drugs uh, no. ex uh, until 2021, where we got some rapidly approved ones in the US. Um, but the way I describe their mechanism is essentially, uh, it's like your house is on fire and you're putting out the fire and you still want yeah, more damage. Yeah. So there's no sort of restorative or mm -hmm. generative property, properties. Mm -hmm. um, which kind of led me to look into the psychedelic uh, neuroplastic properties a bit more and anti-inflammatory. Mm -hmm. um, so my request for professional advice, I suppose, would be, am I thinking along okay lines here? And if I were to write a, cl a clinical protocol tomorrow, mm -hmm. Which psychedelic should I choose, and which country should I do the trial? <laughs> yeah, um, well, I think I can be even more precise in country. I would say Oregon, <laughs> because Oregon has set up a, a, a statewide set of, um, of mushroom clinics, and I'm sure there's quite a lot of elderly people in Oregon, so if you <laughs> begin to look at the cognitive changes there, but it's a very sensible thing to do, I think. There is no doubt. Were you part of the Eleusis team up in Northwick Park no, a few years really. ago? No, not really. We yeah. chatted a lot with yeah. them, but no, we... So there was a small study done at Northwick Park trying to see if you could use sub-psychedelic doses of LSD to uh, improve cognition in people with age-related memory impairment by a company called Eleusis. And some of our team were the therapists or the doctors there. And I think they gave it twice a week for, I think, four to six weeks. And it didn't improve memory, but that might be, you know, might be far too short a time. It did seem to improve mood, which is quite interesting and quite positive. Uh, but the, the, the biggest... Drugs, the, the approved drugs already, they don't improve memory either. They just reduce the level of uh, yeah. biological marker in the brain. No, I... Yeah, I can... I can I, but the, the, so it could still be... It could be. No, exactly. I'm not saying... I'm, I'm saying the field is completely open. The problem with it is the scheduling. Is that it's an eagle drug, and it's almost impossible. You cannot give psilocybin or LSD to, to old people to take home, like or or. It's I've been working in, with cannabis and Alzheimer's, and it's uh, yeah, you triggered me earlier on around the regulatory stuff. Yeah, it's quite. Uh, yeah, the impressive. ethical consenting <laughs> aspect is obviously complicated, right? It's difficult territories, yeah. but you are used to doing that. It sounds like. Yes. We're going to find out in your lifetime, not mine. We'll find out whether microdosing of mushrooms does help protect against aging. So there's some good news, but you have to wait a bit for it. Psilocybin is the way to go. <laughs> That's the easiest one to use, because it's going to be legal in a lot of American states soon. Next question. Hi, um, I'm going to stray slightly from psychedelics, if that's all right. Um, obviously, you mentioned that a lot of the um, psychedelic research is fairly early on um, in kind of how far there is to go. In terms of the slightly more um, kind of publicly, well, I say publicly accepted science, it depends who you talk to, um, in things like um, cannabis and pain relief, 
And yeah. given that, for, so for example, I have chronic pain, and I know it's much safer for me to use cannabis and more effective, however, yeah. I'm left to use painkillers, which are recommended not to use on a long-term basis, but that's kind of what we're left with. Given that that's pretty solid science, what do you think it would take for the government to actually change policy in that regard? Um, or even or kind of on the more, the more kind of, um, the, the older science and the kind of the more solid and accepted and in a lot of places, even places like America which is going backwards in a lot of other ways they yeah. don't have the same attitude towards things like cannabis that we do Well it would, it would take, a, it would take a, two things, it would take a, a different government and, <laughs> and that, as I was saying to someone at the, in the break, my hope is that there will be a, a, Lib, a Lib Dem Labour coalition and if, they, if that happens, the Lib Dems should insist that one of their four planks that they're going to get in return for being in coalition is a reform of the drug laws. And that would, that would massively accelerate work, research. And we've also got to educate doctors. I mean, the medical profession is, uh, yeah, and I can say this because I'm one of them, is a really recalcitrant person. It doesn't like change. And it, it particularly is resistant to patients telling them they know better than they do which I find bizarre. When patients came and told me they had a solution to their problems, I was really happy, because it was rare that I did. But most doctors are very paternalistic, so we do have to change medical education. But education is, gonna, is, is in the end, education is the answer, and that's why this book's out there. It, it, you can hope, well, I mean, it's probably a bit too sophisticated for most politicians, but, but you can educate them, can't you? So, so it doesn't relate directly to a question, but it might be, if you don't know, I think it's worth mentioning that we are actually more than halfway through a psilocybin trial for, for chronic pain with quite nice results. They were presented last week for the first time, preliminary results in Denver, which is not answering your question, but I just went to mention in this yeah. context. So it's interesting work on its way. Mm -hmm. Hi. Um, I know the list of potential candidates um, for psychedelics is very long and all are worthy. I wonder how much research has been done into autism and helping, yeah. helping yeah. teens and adults um, yeah. cope and kind of enhance their, their reality. Yeah, well, none by us. Uh, I, mean, I think it's, it's given that autism is a very challenging thing to find any kind of treatments which work in. I think a lot of people are interested in it. You know, it's gonna, so what we do have, all we can say is that there was one small MDMA study in dealing with social anxiety in people with autism, which seemed to work. So um, there are quite a lot of, kind of people, I think, who are actually medicating their children, particularly with mushrooms, to see if that helps them, but no one's collecting that data. I, I, there are one or two places which are setting up trials. So in, um, in Melbourne, there's a big trial of MDMA and autism being set up. Uh, and there will be trials, I'm sure, of psychedelics, but I don't think there's any data. Did you see any data? I've only seen Alicia Danforth, that the, one, the paper that published a few years, actually several years back now, in social anxiety and autism, small. Trials. But it's not crazy. I mean, it, the idea that you can re help the brain sort of remodel, and a lot of people write to me, I mean, people say that you know, their dyspraxia has been cured and their dyslexia has been cured by taking a, taking a psychedelic. So I, I think it's credible that you could improve connectivity in, in people with autism, where, which is, I mean, it's likely to be a connectivity disorder. I mean, I don't quite know if we know what's wrong with the connectivity. It's not quite the same as depression or addiction, but, but it, is a, it is a wiring problem, probably. So it's conceivable it could respond to you. Hi. Um, most of the research I've seen has 
been beneficial is combining psychedelics with therapy. And I was just wondering yeah. um, how much research there is that psychedelics are beneficial on their own yeah. and if um, yeah. research has been done. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, so, not much research has been done um, giving psychedelics to people without therapy, not people with, men, with, with psychiatric problems. Um, the magnitude of therapy varies, and there is this, these German people, GH, they're not doing much. So they're doing a 5-methoxy study where they're mm. just zapping people without giving them much therapy, and I haven't seen the results. I don't think they were shown that. They have some preliminary results that look okay. So did Yale with DMT um, for depression. So they, they have a very sort of stripped down, very medical model without much psychology. And another thing is when we call it, which is a contested thing right now to talk about psychotherapy, a lot of the companies prefer to talk about psychological support because let's say the COMPASS trial, for instance, is it psychotherapy or is that the right term? They, they think it's more psychological support because you're just doing some preparations for the actual drug experience rather than having a course of psychotherapy where you catalyze by putting a psychedelic into. And actually, maybe it is two different things. MAPS are calling it MDMA-assisted psychotherapy because it probably is. Um, it is more proper psychotherapy with MDMA catalyzing it. But a lot of the psilocybin work might more be a psychedelic experience with psychological support around it. So the narrative is actually differing a bit that the, some companies and are talking about psychedelic therapy, not psychedelic psychotherapy. Or, or, yeah. So, 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 uh, is it actually psychotherapy? Not, not necessarily. Not in all models, and particularly not in the GH and the Yale study. They, they were the most stripped down, I think, so far. So, do you think that um, psychedelics are beneficial on their own without having? The well, I mean, some people find that. Some people. You know, I remember the. the um, the Australian veteran I met about 15 years ago who set up psychedelic, Australia Psychedelics. He, he was a Vietnam vet, so you can see how old he was, and he'd, uh, he'd suffered from PTSD all his life, and he just said, you know, one day I just thought, sod it, and he went away and found some MDMA, took some MDMA by himself, and it kind of lifted, the PTSD lifted. So it, so it clearly can happen. I think the, the danger is, particularly if you're, you're self-medicating for depression, you know, I think, you know, the, our experience is that people can have extremely challenging trips. And, I, you know, I'm not sure I really want that to be happening without someone being with them to, to, in case, you know, they became very disturbed and very upset. And then just to follow on the, 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 the theme of the previous comment, um, one thing is very clear that our, our patients want to talk about the experience. In fact, one of the things you probably know who you talk to people who've taken psychedelics is that they all like to talk about the experience. <laughs> Sometimes it can be a bit repetitive, but, yeah, but well, that may be good. I don't know. But okay. also, actually, we have a large survey where it's done out in real world, naturalistic assessment of people's experiences and their impact on depressive symptoms, for instance, looks good. Effect size is not that different from what we see in the lab. So in a way, that's also naturalistic use of psychedelics without any particular psychotherapeutic context also looks good. It doesn't mean that it's then good for everybody. We are at the moment more zooming in on the ones that didn't do that well to see what predicts when it goes not that well. But of course, those don't have long-term follow-ups, do they? 
and that's the issue. I mean, so my, my thinking is that patients like their therapy. They often set up, they have in our, our patients, set up their own groups to carry on pursuing it as a, as, as, a, as a group. And I think that may well give resilience in the long term. So, so whether we can afford it is another question, but I suspect many people would like it and want to pursue it. Talk. Hello. Can I? Go on. Shall I shut up? Yes. Perfect. So to be honest, I didn't have a precise question. I just had a bunch of questions. But now after the question about autism, I have like, you know, a common plus more or less a precise question. And it's about the, uh, let's say, the background and the context of psychedelic assisted therapy, because it looks like it's not only about the medicine, but also about actually, you know, allowing certain things. And the context is very important. The personality mm -hmm. of the therapist is very important. So my first question would be uh, whether it is possible to actually, you know, test the influence of psychedelics in a natural context, whether it's, you know, nature or, you know, therapy, and if yes, mm. how the personality of the psychotherapist makes a mm. difference. And when it comes to autism, if we take the social disability model, it's more about being, uh, you know, neurodiversity informed and also, you know, just allowing this double empathy problem to uh, dissipate somehow. And yeah, and, and the very last question about... Uh, no, I think just two is enough. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry, I, I'm ADHD, so it's really hard for me to just, you know... Uh, yeah, and... Midi-dosing, LSD midi-dosing. That's what Maastricht say for ADHD. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, to answer to... Um, so the psychotherapy, you know, it's, it's really, a, it's an interesting question. We've looked to some extent at allegiance between, you know, or sort of relationship rapport between therapists and, uh, and outcomes. And I think Compass did as well, didn't they? And there was probably some, I mean, there's a, any relationship that you have with a, with a doctor is going gonna, is gonna to impact your, you know, the, the, your outputs. If you're, if, you're not, if you're not trusting or if you're suspicious, it's likely, you're likely not to do so well, I guess. So, I, I mean, I think it's, so that's a factor. And, but what you do about that, other than try to improve medical, you know, medical care and learning, I don't, I'm not so sure. I don't think it's going to override the drug effect to any major extent. I think it might be difficult to, to assess and report the personality structure of therapists. Maybe the, but what you might, in a way, also be thinking of is the, the rapport that you're, which is not necessarily the same thing, and their training and their background and their approach and their. Um, maybe motivations and attitudes towards the treatment models and so on, which in a way comes a bit with their training. But personality might be a controversial thing to assess in, in all yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it's more about, you know, this uh, paradox when it's not more, it's not about the modality, but more about how people click, mm -hmm. whether the temper clicks and so on and so forth. And just a quick, short question. So. I thought more about narcissistic personality disorder and how probably psychedelics would again allow certain things and you know just break this bubble. So, are there any valid studies about it? And if yes, again, what's about the personality? I don't. I mean, we're not generally. There's, well, there's very, very few studies in people with personality disorder. 
Uh, it's, and I think that the evidence from the surveys is that uh, borderline people don't tend to do very well either. So, so it may be it's not very good for personality disorder. It needs to be tested more. And narcissistic personality disorder specifically, they would never seek any treatment for their problems. That's the whole point. Because they're absolutely convinced that they are fine and everybody else are idiots. <laughs> And by the way, I, I, I reused a joke that you made, and it, it brought me in massive problems. I was in Davos at World Economic Forum, and David had mentioned something about, don't, I don't know if I can say it now, he's not a president anymore, Donald Trump. And, and, and uh, somebody in Davos, and Donald Trump was actually there, not in the same building, but in the building next door, and there were only Americans in the room, the same size as here, and then somebody asked that question, and something about Donald Trump came up, and then I, took the mic, intervened, because I just felt so burningly to put this joke out there and say that in order, in order for it to work, it needs to have a target, the, the compound MGMA, so it needs to have a brain, otherwise it won't work. <laughs> and, then, and then I thought it was really funny, and then there was just like, everybody did, <gasps> because they were all Americans, it was horrible, so I was like, oh, that was David Knott's joke. Oh. <laughs> Um, talking to people who work with people recovering and people who are in the rooms, i.e. NA and AA, there is a lot of pushback against psychedelics, despite the fact that the science wouldn't support them. Mm -hmm. um, and it's seen as drug-taking and as people taking psychedelics as, a, as drug users rather than in a therapeutic setting. What's going to happen to the anonymous programs, given the success that um, psychedelics help with addiction? Yeah. Well, it's a big problem. Um, <laughs> last November, I went to a, an enormous conference, uh, an addiction conference in the States, to talk about psychedelics. And it, most of the people there were running 12-step programs, three-month 12-step programs residentially. And they, they were absolutely candid. They said, you know, this is, we're not going to adopt this because we're going to, we'll, it'll do us out of business. So it is a huge problem. And uh, I think that's, that's the business side of it. Um, I think Alcoholics Anonymous, which is, you know, the charity side, they should be very supportive. If you read in the book, Bill Wilson, Alcoholics Anonymous was founded following Bill Wilson having a psychedelic experience from which he escaped the shackles of his alcoholism. So they should be absolutely... In fact, it was, there was no problem about using psychedelics in Alcoholics Anonymous until 1967, when they became illegal. And then Alcoholics Anonymous had a schism. The ones that are still there said, we can't use these drugs because they're illegal. And the others said, well, they shouldn't be illegal, we'll carry on using them, but they went underground. Next question. Oh, we've got one more question. One Who's got the microphone? Oh, no, we haven't got any more questions because you haven't got the microphone. We're, gonna, uh, we're already oh, running late. Look, okay, okay we better stop then. So, so. so I promised to mention that uh, the next Drug Science event will be actually in collaboration with uh, our team at Imperial where you will interview a bunch of the people in our team in shorter interviews on stage in a live podcast okay. uh, event on the, <laughs> on the fifth... <laughs> How can I say no? <laughs> And I will marry you, yes, all right. <laughs> <laughs> on the 15th of August, White City, could be a lot of different places in White City, uh, 
tickets are available on DrogScience website and it is for free for community members of DrogScience. So I promise to mention that. Can the I just ask, community members? Uh, who, who are community members here? Well, thank you so much. That's wonderful to see so many of you here. Thanks. Thank you, yeah. And this venue, I think we have until 10 o'clock, but there's no more sent yet, but hang out and uh, <laughs> buy some books, have some tap water. Thank yeah. you all. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.